for all those who feel called to build something bigger than themselves, but have no idea or representation as to how to bring it to pass. This podcast is for you. Let's figure it out together. Get ready. Let's build. Four, three, two, one. Everything that you've been through up until this point has helped you create your why. And when you have a strong why, nothing will stop you. My name is Princeton Parker, and welcome to my crib. (laughs) Was I the only one that used to love that show? Like, MTV Cribs was my jam. I was just talking to a customer about this at work the other day. I used to love that show. And then you got to dream about what you wanted to have in your house. And I think one of the coolest things I ever saw, oddly enough... The indoor pool was cool. I think every time I saw somebody that had an uh, an in-home movie theater, I thought that was pretty dope. But man, there was something about the refrigerator where you could see inside it that I was just like, whoa. (laughs) Anyway, uh, I wish that show was still around. And then I wish that I had a crib that was worthy of. But you know what I realized? Sometimes it wasn't even about the house that was dope it was just about seeing how somebody who you like lived it was more so about the celebrity than it was about their house because there's celebrities who had some super basic homes you were just like what you make all this money and this is what you know anyway welcome to my podcast which is kind of like my crib because i kind of like live here i'll tell you all of my business awkward so welcome. Hey, listen, fam, um, we are about a week and a half past Father's Day, and uh, I took that weekend to spend uh, some really much needed and awesome family time to celebrate uh, the men in my life. And so I want to say a happy Father's Day, uh, first and foremost. Second of all, I want to hold space uh, for anybody who um, in that day, if you follow me on Instagram, I addressed this there, who on that day uh, is was experiencing some grief because of strained relationships, the absence of a father or things like that. And one of the things that I'm continuing to evolve and do is make sure that on the days where most people celebrate to remember that just because one day is dedicated to one thing doesn't mean that that's how the whole world is experiencing that day. So if you were holding or experiencing some grief, I hold space for you and I'm praying for you and I want to let you know that that you matter and that I'm standing with you. In my own life, however, I've been blessed and and fortunate and privileged to have um, my father uh, for 25 years, Irvin Lewis Parker, who is a brilliant man. And uh, I feel like just in general, I don't talk about him enough. And it's not because he's not amazing. It's just because uh, he is the quiet force in our family for the the most part. Um, And I spend a lot of time with my mom as it related to kind of building the ministry and when I was traveling and that kind of stuff. But uh, it does not mean for one second that my dad has not had a tremendous impact on my life. My father is one of the most consistent, genuine, and integral human beings I've ever, like the most that I've ever observed or met in my entire life. He is so stable, sometimes almost to a fault. Like he's so stable that sometimes change makes him uh, highly nervous and or uh, aggravated, but he's he's so brilliant. Um, everything that relates to like the visionary in me in terms of like trying to see long term and building up like, oh, this this is a new scheme. We could do this. We could plan this. We could build this. That's him all day. In fact, now I have like a like six level bookshelf that sits in my room that has all of my like and I have each shelf is dedicated to a type of literature. So I have a shelf for emotional health, a shelf for social justice, a shelf for theology, a shelf for all my Bibles and then like commentaries, whatever. Before I had this, though, I used to go up to my dad's bookshelf and he wasn't a preacher. People always ask if my dad was a preacher. He wasn't a preacher. But once he got saved, he took salvation so seriously that he wanted to learn about it for himself. And so my dad has notebooks and notebooks and notebooks of just him toying around with theology. And now as I, you know, approach life and continue to study and and, and build my own theological mind, I realize that... I, 
it's because he passed that mantle down to me. It's because that's who um, he was and is. And so when I was studying growing up, uh, whenever <laughs> my dad always knew when I was about to preach because like nine of his books from his bookshelf would disappear and they'd all be downstairs with me. Um, he was my first library. He's taught me about money management. My dad is the most disciplined person with money um, that I've ever met. I, I think for me, uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm good at it sometimes and, and other times I could be all over the place, but I've watched him. We never went without anything. My dad was so supportive. He wasn't, um, he wasn't for all the extra. <laughs> he's, he's a very like bare minimum person. So sometimes we, he and I, I, I get a little bit like, we should be doing more. <laughs> But he's very much so like, find out what your role is and fill that. And so what I mean by extra is like, I was always doing stuff. And my mom was the one who would be at all the shows and be at all the the stuff and be telling us to get involved in more stuff. But my dad was the one who was driving us to those rehearsals. We live in South LA and I went to high school in Culver City. Um, and in traffic, that drive could be an hour, an hour and 15 minutes, whatever. And my dad would make that drive to pick us up after school because we would have after school rehearsals so we couldn't take the bus back home. I lived in South LA, but because my music friends, um, predominantly white, lived in other spaces, Cheviot Hills, West Hollywood, um, Beverly Hills, Hollywood, et cetera, um, my father would would drive me on days off from South LA all the way out to these spaces so that I could rehearse at their houses. And we would rehearse for like three, four hours and then want to go chill and hang out and be like, oh, dad, can we go down the street and get pizza? And he would wait patiently. He would take a, his Sunday school lesson or a book and... Um, and just allow me to to live. And I, I don't know many parents or just people who had that level of patience or dedication. And so that's who he is. I tell him all the time, if I can just be half the man you are, I will have been okay. So um, he doesn't even listen to podcasts, but anyway, <laughs> Dad, I love you and I want to acknowledge him and, and I'm being intentional about it because I think so many people have heard about my mom, <laughs> but my dad has had such a tremendous impact on my life in terms of who I want to be and who I've spent time with. So I bring that up because the sermon that you're about to hear is called A Tale of Two Men. As I look at my dad and as I grow up at 25 years old, I had a question. That question was simple. What does it mean to be a man? I had the awesome privilege of preaching for Father's Day. My bishop, Bishop Virgil Patterson, was out of town and he said, Pastor Princeton, it's on you. And I was like, oh my God, you mean to tell me not only am I preaching at 1030, which is fine, but I'm preaching on Father's Day. Whoa. <laughs> and I'm super sensitive about preaching on special holidays because I believe that we cannot preach beyond our seat in life. So I can't preach beyond what I've been given. I have to be cautious when I'm speaking to somebody's experience to, to, be, to be careful with it. I'll say that much. And so, you know, this 25-year-old dude is about to preach on Father's Day who has no kids and, you know, is barely trying to understand relationships, let alone kids. And so I said, Lord, what do you want to say? And so I zoomed out a little bit from the conversation of fatherhood and addressed manhood from the from my seat in life, which is, what does it mean to be a man? And the Bible shares with us two archetypes of what they call the first man and the second man, the first Adam and the second Adam. And so without giving too much away, I preached a message that I think you'll greatly benefit from called A Tale of Two Men. Now, before you press pause and wait for next week's episode and be like, I ain't a man. Uh, I think you should listen to this because if you've ever wondered, are there good men still left? If you've ever wondered um, how to have conversations about masculinity that are a little bit different and a little bit elevated than what culture is doing right now in some senses with your young sons, your little brothers, your cousins, um, or if you just want to figure out who you should be looking for from a dating perspective, I think you should consider the tale of two men and then assess based upon which category of man the men around you might fall into. Well, let's dig in and let me know your thoughts after. All right, here we go. Here's the word from Father's Day 2019, a tale of two men. Shout out to the fathers in the house, y'all. My God, today. Y'all better go ahead. Y'all fathers still look good, too. You didn't let kids take your swag away. You better go ahead. Like, we're going to have these kids, and I'm going to still look good. I'm going to still. Bless God if you still got your. Okay. If you still got your walk strong. I almost called it a pimp walk. That's not godly. If, if your walk is still strong, fathers, after. After uh, after planting a few, God bless you. 
we honor fathers for the work that you've done. It's a huge honor. And, and uh, one day I will join you and I hope to do uh, it on the level that some of the men at Crusade have done it as fathers. We celebrate you and honor you and our house would not be complete with you. I'm going to get to the word of God because I know that for many of you all, there's a brunch anointing on your life that you're trying to get to on the other side. I feel it. I sense it in the atmosphere and you almost see me as a hindrance to the anointing. You're like, as soon as white pants is done, there's a brunch on. I, I feel you. I feel you already. And it's okay. There's still a word for you. For some of you, there's an oven anointing. You're not going to brunch, but there's something in your oven right now. Uh, that's uh, prepared. And so I want to release you into what God's really going to do in your life today. But before you go, if you allow me to plant this word, I think God wants to say some stuff and then we'll be all out together. Okay. Genesis, the third chapter. Bless your high name, oh God. Let's start at verse one, shall we? Thank you. I like this section. Y'all still hyping me up. These three over here, I appreciate you. Here we go. Verse one. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And the serpent said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said that ye shall not eat of the tree of the garden, of every tree of the garden? And the woman said back to the serpent, So the rule is, we can eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But there's this one condition, fam, of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden. God hath said, ye shall not eat of it. In fact, don't just not eat. Don't touch that mess. <laughs> I mean, you know, sometimes you can't even touch because once you touch, fire gonna start. <laughs> That's funny. But of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, because God hath said, ye shall not eat of it, neither shall ye touch it unless you die. And the serpent said unto the woman, hey, it ain't that deep. You are not going to die. Because God knows that in the day that you eat thereof, then what's really going to happen is your eyes will be open. And you will be as God's, lowercase g, as God's knowing good and evil. Verse 6. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof and she did eat and gave also unto her husband with her and he did eat. And the eyes of them both were open and they knew that they were naked. So they responded and they sewed fig leaves together and they made themselves aprons. But then they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called unto Adam and he said unto him Adam where you at? Verse 10, and he said, I heard your voice in the garden. I got scared because I know I'm naked, and so I hid. And he said, but who told you you were naked? Did you eat of the tree whereof I commanded thee that thou shouldst not eat? And the man said, the woman, watch this, that you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate somebody said is that right <laughs> is that what happened Adam Romans 5 Romans 5 Romans 5 I love the ways in which the Old Testament and New Testament converse with each other this is why we read them both to see how they interact how they converse what are they communicating together we end at verse 12 of Genesis 3 to receive the words of Paul in Romans chapter 5, verse 12. Literally pick up, right? Adam said, hey, look, the girl you gave me, fam, listen, what was a brother supposed to do? Verse 12 of Romans 5. Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and then death came in because of sin, so death has passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. For even until the law, sin was in the world. But sin is not imputed where there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam all the way to Moses. Even over them that hadn't sinned like Adam sinned, 
who is the figure of him that was to come. But not as the offense, so also is the free gift. For if the offense or the bad decision or the mess up of one, many are dead, then much more by the grace of God and the gift of grace, which is by another man, Jesus Christ, it hath abounded unto many. And not as it was by one that sinned, so is the gift. For the judgment was by one man. But the free gift is of many offenses unto justification. Verse 17, here's where we're going to focus. For if by one man's mess up, death reigned, much more they which receive abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. I want to talk to you from this subject. I want to preach to you about a tale of two men. I want to walk you through a tale of two men. The Bible presents to us that if you're going to know anybody in the Bible, there's a lot to learn from two men. There's a lot that has to do with my existence and my faith and the way I see the world if I study two men. I want to talk about a tale of two men. I find myself asking at 25, what does it mean to be a man? I find myself asking the question. I'm sure that you, like me, have probably heard at some point, be a man or man up. Or this is what men don't do. Perhaps you know someone who has been guilty of watching their young son fall to the ground. And as the son begins to cry, we punch the son in the chest, even though the son has just fallen. And we tell the kid, man up. You don't cry. So at 25, I find myself asking, what does it mean to be a man? Perhaps you have been someone that maybe have not contemplated that for your life because that's not your seat in life. You might not be a man, so you have no care as to what it means to be one. But maybe you sat on the other end of it and wondered, are there still any good men? Uh Uh-oh, there was one amen. Wondered if there are any that, uh, that have the intention to do right. And so I asked myself, what, what does it mean? And when you turn to culture, culture has all kind of definitions. Being a man, it's about how much money you got. And so for many of us, we hit the grind because if I just have enough stuff, maybe that's what it means to be a man. Culture tells us that your masculinity is defined by your violence. So most of us go around beating people up. Not because they deserve it, but because you just need to know that I'm a man and you don't check me. We are informed that our masculinity is tied to how many partners we've had. You get a badge of honor for everyone that you quote unquote take down. And the question begs within me, what does it mean to be a man? Culture will respond that to be a man means that you have some sort of position of power. And so you have some people that are willing to do whatever it takes to get to another position because everything that they achieve puts another notch in the belt of manhood for them. And so then, as I begun uh, my journey, I approached several people about manhood. Bishop and I have great talks about what does it mean to be a man. My biological father and I have had great conversations. I remember walking around in the park with him and I said, Dad, I'm struggling because I'm growing into what I, don't def- what I can't define yet. I am a man and don't yet know that my definition is secure. What do you do when God calls you to walk in an identity that you don't know yet? Part of the danger is that most of us were called to be something before we could define it. Perhaps we celebrate you as a father in this room, but you found out that she had child before you knew and understood how to define father. Perhaps because yours was not present. Perhaps because you had never seen a good demonstration of one. And so here you are with the title, but you don't have a definition. I asked my father, what does it mean to be a man? 
We had a great conversation. I asked my mentors about manhood. Mentors in my life, Jonathan Sprinkles out of Houston. Mentors in my life, Pastor Dwight Ratcliffe, Pastor of the Message Center. Mentors in my life, Pastor Hosea Collins. I sat at their feet and said, help me understand what does it mean to be a man. And, and all their definitions were great. And there was a common thread between all these conversations. And I learned that it was this. That our manhood is defined in part not by what we have or what we've accomplished or what we've achieved or who we've been in relationship with, but to a large degree, our manhood is defined by our choices. Our manhood is defined by the intentionality behind who we choose to be. So the first point in my message is that I'm going to tell you about a tale of two men setting it up that you have free agency to decide which one you will choose to be. That the truth of it is, there is no definition that I can hand you about manhood. Because it is all determined by who you choose to be. My father gave me a definition. Bishop gave me definitions. My mentors gave me definitions. But at the end of the day, it will be my responsibility to discover and to choose and to define for myself how I understand what it means to grow into a calling that I may not understand yet. So in my quest, I started with them, but the first thing I want you to write down in your notes is that, number one, manhood is about choices. Steve Harvey puts it out there that life is uh, 10% what happens to you and 90% how you respond. Manhood is about choices. The reason why my parents pull away out of their regulation of my life as I develop into being a man is because true manhood will not be defined by what I have or what I've done or who I've been in relation. It will be defined by how well I own my decisions. And so we must begin with the tale of two men being a presentation of who will you choose to be? Some of us have been searching for answers for someone to hand life to us when God is instead asking you to make a decision. That life doesn't begin when someone tells you how to be. It begins when you choose who you want to be. Oh my goodness, I'm going to say it again. Life doesn't begin when someone tells you who to be. It begins when you decide who you want to be. A tale of two men. A tale of two men that shows us that we have a choice. A tale of two men that, that allows us to understand that the Bible gives us an opportunity to see two different pictures of options of how to define and pursue masculinity, how to define and pursue who we are, how to define and pursue the question that I am pursuing, which is what does it mean in its fullness to be a man? What does it mean in its fullness to be a good man? And what the Bible helps us understand is that every man must have a standard for his life. So that his identity will be measured by his character, not his status. Let me say it again. Every one of us, every man must have a standard for his life. So that his identity will be measured by his character, by who he is, not his status, what he has. I'm going to say it one last time. If you get this, you got most of the message. Every man must have a standard for his life so that his identity will be measured by his character, by who he is, not what he has. This whole idea about choosing begins in Genesis. I want to talk about two men, and then I'm going to be out your way. Man number one is presented to us in Genesis 3. How did Adam arrive in the garden? Why did God create Adam? Well, I was in Rome about six years ago, and I was at the Vatican, and, and we had, there were 12 of us, and we had a private audience with the man who was the press secretary for the Pope. So any word that was going to come out to the entire world from the Pope, it was going to come through this press secretary. We sat with him to understand religion and press and all that kind of stuff. And he told this story. He said, there was a daughter who was riding in the car with her father and said to the father, why did you have me? 
Now, parents in the room, I want you to imagine, what would you do with that one? Kids go up and say, um, why did you have me? We could be honest. Some of us would be like, okay, how do I not say that, look, it was a rough night. <laughs> the way stuff happened. <laughs> the father paused in the car, like most of us, like, what do you do with this? She said, daddy, why did you have me? And the father paused and said, well, what do I do with this? Um, why did I have you? Because tax returns. Um, <laughs> Daddy, why, why, did, why did you have me? Because listen, back in the day, your mother had it going on, okay? <laughs> Dad, Dad why, why did you have me? He paused. He stopped the car, looked in his rearview mirror at his baby girl, and he said, the reason why I had you is because daddy had a lot of love to give. Daddy had so much love to give that, that, that he knew that the only proper response was to bring someone else into the world that was his that he could give that love to. How did Adam end up in the garden because daddy had a lot of love to give what was the impetus behind creating a humanity daddy had a lot of love to give so much love that James Weldon Johnson in his poem the creation puts it this way that God stepped out on space and and he said I'm lonely I'll make me a man this idea that God desired relationship and fellowship. And so what gets created is the first man named Adam. Look at this setup. Not only did God have a lot of love to give, God had a lot of territory to give. God said, hey, listen, I'm chilling in heaven. Stuff is good. I'm going to make this other kingdom. I'm going to call it earth. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to own it, but I'm about to lease it to you. You're going to be the property manager. I'm going to own it. It belongs to me, but I'm going to put you on it to collect the rent. You're going to water the grass. As a matter of fact, it's pretty much like you own it. It's just in my name. I'm going to rule it from up here. I'm going to tell you what I want done. We're going to chill. You're going to do what you got to do. In fact, I trust you because I made you pretty much just like me. So do the thing with your bad self, okay? In fact, I've created you to be in a sense self-sufficient. I've created with you intelligence. I've given you resources. All I want you to do is go do the doggone thing. Adam shows up on earth. The Bible says that God has made Adam from the dust of the ground. The Adam, the Adam, the Hebrew word meaning first human. God has created the first human being from the dust of the ground. Very interesting. We'll come back to that. Created the, the Adam from the dust of the ground. And the Bible says that what makes Adam different from every other thing that has been created from the ground, because there were other things that were made from the ground. God says, and the Bible says that in God's creation, he made animals from the ground, right? That each of them were made from the place where they lived. So water animals came from water and dirt mammals came from dirt. And so we did too, but here was the difference. The Bible says, I'm going to do one little thing to you, Adam. I'm going to breathe my breath into you. And you're going to be a living soul. The first man created from the dust in the image of God. And God says, look, property manage my stuff. Do your thing. It belongs to you. I got two conditions. One, you and I chill every day. Why? Because remember, I didn't create you for the earth. I created you for me. The earth was your bonus package. So first condition, I just want to chill with you every day. We're going to talk. You're going to be with me. I'm going to tell you what else I need you to do. It's going to be lit. Condition number two. There's some stuff, Adam, that happened before you that you don't really understand. Good and evil. You don't need to. Because what you know of me is enough for you to do what I've told you to do. So all the stuff you don't need to know about that's going to hurt you more than it's going to help you. I've got to put it somewhere because it already exists in the earth. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to put it in one spot. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat it, you'll be exposed, but you'll be exposed to the alternative to me. 
but you're not wise enough to handle the alternative. So my only condition is, number one, we chill every day because I made you for me first, then for the earth. Second, don't touch what you can't handle. It's my only condition. I got to put it somewhere because there is a realm, right? Because we already know about the, we already know about Lucifer's turn in heaven, right? I don't have time to unpack it. There's a whole different world you don't know about. But you don't need to know because if you did, it would kill what I've already blessed. So you don't need to know. The first man had everything that he needed. And the Bible says that one day there was one conversation between the serpent and the woman. I'll come back to that. And in that conversation... The serpent plants a seed that is so small, but it is so powerful that watch this. Didn't I tell you that God was talking every single day? Watch this. It took Satan one conversation to undo what God had been doing in conversation every day. Since the beginning of Adam's existence. Satan undid in about 14 words. What God had been building since the moment he breathed life into the Adam. They eat the fruit. And here is where we see the tale of the first man. In Genesis 3, let me tell you about man number one. And how he chose to be a man in the biggest moment of his life. You want to know what he did? You want to know what he chose? You want to know what it meant to be a man to him? The first thing that he did, the first man chose silence. Write that down. The first man chose silence. The first man chose silence. I find it interesting that when there was talking going on, the serpent was saying something. Eve was saying something. Why Adam wasn't saying nothing? You ever wonder about that? Now watch this. We know he can talk. Because he say a lot to God after stuff that hit the fan. But while it's going down, he ain't got nothing to say. One of the attributes of man number one is that you are silent in times where you should speak up. And most of the time when we hear that, we think that somebody's trying to make us into this Chatty Cathy to say stuff all the time. You're like, I ain't got that many words. I'm not the kind of person. It's not about you talking all the time. It's about you discerning which moments matter. Which moments require your voice as the person of God that God has made you to be. How many people are wounded today because there was a silent parent? How many people are broken today because there was a moment where your voice was necessary but you chose silence? It could have been a myriad of things. It could have been because uh, Adam was afraid of conflict. It could have been because maybe Adam had, oh my goodness, this is so powerful. The Bible says that just just a little bit ago, that Adam had the ability to name all the animals, but couldn't have a conversation with one. He was smart enough to name however many thousand millions of species there were but didn't have no words for when one approached his girl. The first sin of man number one in the tale of two men is the sin of silence. The Lord has been dealing with me about silence because preaching is easy. One-on-one conversation is hard. This is not hard. I was born to do this. I do this by myself in my bathroom. If all y'all decided not to come to church, I would turn the sound system on and preach by myself because it's just fun sometimes. I preach about stuff that don't even make no sense. I'd be at work like, pineapples be sour, but the Lord is the God of the sweet pineapple. Thank you that where it used to be sour, now it's sweet. Lord, I'm going to cut it up and slice it because there's a spear. Why? Because I've got the spear of the Holy Ghost. Anyway, preaching is easy. Addressing conflict is hard. Lord's been dealing with me about this in, in, in leadership, particularly at work. I've, I've tasked them with pushing me. 
I love development conversations. I love those difficult conversations sometimes. But every now and then, there'll be a moment where I'm like, I probably should call him on that. Mm, it ain't that big a deal. And it could come from another place. It could become because you just think it's going to all work itself out. It could come because you think there's nothing wrong with it, et cetera, et cetera. But the, the point is, where there was silence, what you don't confront, you condone. What you don't confront, you condone. Can I tell you one of the things I learned in the, in, when I was in a relationship? If you don't check her flirtation, you're condoning it. If I don't put brakes around, like, if I entertain the fact that you want something from me that I am not in a place to give, then I'm at fault. Because there's a moment that requires me to speak. Watch this. There are going to be some moments that require us to speak up and apologize. For many of us, God's going to deal with our pride in this season. God's going to deal with the fact that, and you know what's funny? You know what's funny? You got those people in your life, and this is not just man-related, this is people in general. You got those people in your life that instead of saying sorry, they just start being super nice. <laughs> you be like, excuse me, don't, no, 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 let's address this, fam. I appreciate the fact that you bought me lunch. I thank you for your little jokes you're trying to crack. But let's go back and let me hear you say that you know you were wrong. The first man has the sin of silence. Watch this. Maybe what was necessary in that moment was not Adam standing up to correct Eve or to fight the serpent. But maybe all he needed to do was affirm her and them and their mission. Maybe your employees don't need correction. They need affirmation. Maybe they perform better if you said good job. Maybe there's a different motivation that your kid can go to school with if they know that they're going to school with the love of their parents, not going to school to get the love of their parents. The first man responds in silence. They're having this whole conversation and he ain't nowhere to go. Second of all, the Bible says that Adam ain't had no strategy for when we was talking about eating the fruit that's going to mess up everything. But all of a sudden, now that there's destruction, he has all these ideas about how to cover what should be exposed so it can be healed. Let me say this again. First sin of, the, of, of man number one is silence. The second is he covers what should be exposed so it can be healed. Adam immediately goes into reputation management. Hey, look, hey, hey, oof. All right, so um, this about to get us in some trouble. I'll tell you what, here's what we need to do. Let's figure out how to cover this. Beware of people in your life who always have ideas of how to hide things, but never have any ideas on how to heal things. Let me say it again. Be careful of people in your life that have all kind of ways to hide things, but don't have ways to heal things. I'm preaching this message because I know what it is to live under the effect of man number one. Where almost twice daily you delete your internet history because you don't want anybody to see how far deep into pornography you got. And I covered what needed to be exposed so that I could heal quicker. I sold leaves around my brokenness when God was never afraid of my brokenness. God was never thrown off by how underneath the standard I was. Why? Because God has always been the standard. But because I fell into the category of the first type of man, I decided to cover what should have been a conversation sooner. And I waited until that same thing began to cause anxiety, depression, and the fear of the imposter syndrome. That now that all that stuff was keeping me up at night and weighing on my ministry and weighing on the things that I wanted to do, now I wanted to reach out and tell somebody, hey, listen, I've been struggling with this. And by that point, it had already been five plus years. Our immediate reaction to when trouble hits is, ooh, let me figure out how to cover this up. You done done something at work, and instead of going to the boss and being like, hey, listen, I messed this up, we got to figure this out, you'd be like, let me figure out how I can put this on somebody else. It takes two people to get pregnant. And yet, for many of us, when that moment happens, our first response 
And you can tell, even, even when it doesn't reach that point, you can tell what's in our hearts. And I'm not preaching at you. I'm preaching with you because I've experienced it. You can sense the disdain in our heart when it gets close to that point and you think it's about to happen. And the immediate thought that goes in your mind is, how do I fix this? It reveals that there is something in the heart that's of man number one that covers what should be exposed so that it can be healed. Is there anything that you've been hiding out of shame? Because you're afraid that if they know it, they're going to judge you. He covered what should have been exposed so it could be healed. God says, who told you you were naked? Who made that a big deal? I made you that way and there was no shame attached to it. Why did he cover what should have been exposed? Because he was more moved by his shame than he was his purpose. And so out of shame, he said, yo, I got to cover this up because it's probably going to wreck everything. God said, you've been naked. Like, did you see that in the text? God was literally like, um, you sewing leaves together. And you've been, like, so you mean to tell me the other thousands of days y'all been out here just letting it all hang, like, uh, all of a sudden you need some leaves? I'm a little concerned here. Number three, man number one chose blame. There finally comes a point where God has a conversation and let me tell, I'm going to, well, I'll get to that in a minute. Adam's first response is blame. He blames the woman. He blames the woman. He says, look, the, the, the woman is her fault. I know this is bad. I know this is what you told us not to do, but it is really her fault. The danger is that when he said that, Adam made Eve the sole gatekeeper of standards that were given to both of them. The problem with this statement is that the standards of God were given to both. What he had for them was given to both. But Adam puts the responsibility just on her. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. You don't believe me. Let's go back into the text. Let's go back into the text. Let's go to... Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Go there super quickly. Genesis chapter 1, verse 26. Listen to something real cool here. And God said, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let who have dominion? Say it louder. Let who have dominion? Them. How interesting. The Bible then says, over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. So God created man in his own image and the image of God created he him. Male and female created he them. Verse 28. And God blessed them and God said unto who? God said unto Adam. God said unto them. Here's the crazy part about God. Is he was talking to them and he hadn't formed them. If you read the text. God has not gone to the dirt to make them, but he's already talking to them. So even before they were in human form, both of them were present when God spoke the word. Let me take you deeper. Where did God pull Eve from? So God never went back to the dirt to create a second person. So that means that since God created them, and spoke to them, them had been in him all along. Did you see that? Since God pulled Eve, what he's literally doing, right? We can almost look at the text this way. It is not good for man to be alone. Now, we think that means that God said, I'm going to go bring somebody else. No, it is not for good for man to be alone. It is not good for man, human to be all one. So I will separate what used to just exist in one human form. I think that perhaps this might have been why Adam could name all them animals like that. Because it was his mouth but Eve's brain in there. Just be like, hey, call it that, call it that, call it that. I ain't got scripture to back that up, but when you preach that, give me credit for it, okay? I just think there was something about the fact that it was all, I'm joking. Here's what I'm getting at. 
God spoke to them. So how could he blame it on just her? If they both had dominion, if they both had agency, if they both had heard from God, then how could he sit and blame somebody? And can I tell you that one of the things that the the, the type one man does is the type one man will look and place responsibility on other people to help him maintain what God assigned to him. And we have a habit of doing this in church. I'm almost done. We have a habit of doing this in church. It takes both of us. But we blame sometimes women for everything where we say, wives, the only reason why there's conflict is because you're not peaceful and submissive. Or listen, you need your skirt to be lower so that you don't tempt a man. Listen, if, if their skirt or whatever they're wearing tempts you, then what you've done is you have just foregone your agency. You've said, I don't have the Holy Ghost. I don't have the ability to control my own self. It takes somebody else to control me. He just couldn't help himself because she, nope, that's me placing blame on somebody else to maintain the standard God gave to me. At this point in my life, it ain't for people to be wearing different stuff. It's for Princeton to look down when he is walking up the stairs. I wish I had two or three witnesses that would just be real and honest, okay? It is not for you to maintain my salvation because if you're maintaining my salvation, I don't have a relationship with God. If I'm only saved because you keep me being saved, that means I'm not in rightful standing with God. We blame people. We say the reason why I never did anything is because nobody gave me an opportunity. The reason I never did anything is because nobody. And God is saying that's, that's, that's real. That's real Adam of you, fam. God is calling us into a season of accountability. This whole idea that we have to tell, that we tell ourselves and men sometimes that, 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 that our women have to hold us down until we get it together. And so we get to cheat, we get to abuse, we get to build up all these things. And then at, at some point, once they have suffered enough, we'll come around and do right. And their suffering will have been worth it because they stayed through us while we chose to be Adam. In anything where two people both have agency, responsibility, control of themselves, and it's healthy, there will always be accountability both ways. I want you to write that in your notes. Say both ways. Both ways. There were things that they both could have done differently. And we do this sort of blame shifting, right? We either blame Adam. Adam is the reason why everything, blah, blah, blah. And then we got Eve is the reason why we got to have pain. I can't tell you how many people, are, I can't wait to get to heaven and ask Eve. Listen, fam, anybody going to be thinking about Eve? I'll be so excited to be Jesus. I'm just, hey, Jesus, bro, I got in this month. Thank you. You need me to play the organ? Y'all got organs up here? No, you got angels for that. I'm sorry. I can't even play that good. But, you know, I'm so glad to be here. I ain't going to be concerned about Paul. If I see Adam up there, I'm be like, hey, good looking, bro. God bless you, man. We both made it. All right, too. Back to praise of Jesus. I ain't tripping. We love to shift blame when in reality, there's accountability on both sides. Number four, the last thing that type that man number one chose. He chose to protect his ego, not his inheritance. In my life right now, there's a lot that I want, and the people who've been walking with me understand that I'm, I'm, I'm in a, a really interesting between season where I know everything God's called me to do and have, but it's not happening in the time that I think it should. And the temptation that that puts on me is to make rush decisions. Sometimes because I'm, I'm so in a rush to be, in a rush to be an adult, in a rush to be a homeowner, in a rush to be all these things, that what that creates is this anxiety that I need, to, I need to keep grinding. I need to keep hustling. I need to keep doing this. I, let, me, let me do this. And let me do this. Let me try to make this happen. And let me make this. I know that this might not be God, but I, I feel it. So let me just do it. And what God had to deal with me on, he said, the problem is some of that stuff is not out of purpose. It's out of ego. It's because you feel like you need to do it to be valued. I was talking to my therapist about this. She was like, you have to be careful in the dating process about presenting as a husband because you feel like that's the only thing that gives you value. Hear me clearly. The right things done out of insecurity will be just as toxic as doing the wrong things. If you do the right thing, you, you pretend to be this person that is always there for them and always saying what they, you know, they want to hear and all that kind of stuff, but you're doing it out of the wrong motivation, 
is just as bad as if you was just out here. It's just as toxic. Why? Because you're presenting something that's not done on the right motivation. And anything done out of the wrong motivation is not going to last. So at some point, if you're doing it out of insecurity right now, by the time your self-esteem get up, then you're going to stop doing this. And oftentimes we leave businesses, we leave dreams, we leave people kind of undone because we were doing it in the wrong motivation. And then as soon as that motivation got healed, now we dropped what we were doing. God has been dealing with me about protecting my inheritance. When you're looking at your inheritance, you make decisions for the long term. God has been pressing me recently about my relationship with time. I remember I was praying about something the other day and God was like, for what? Like, like there was something I was praying and, and, and God like pressed it on my spirit. What are you going to do with that if you get it? If, if I give it to you tomorrow, what are, what are you going to do? I heard a, a quote by Craig Groeschel. And Craig Groeschel said, and this ate me up. He said the young people tend to overestimate what God wants to do in the short term. But they grossly underestimate what God wants to do in the long term. So we overestimate right now that all this stuff's supposed to happen. We're supposed to pop up, blah, 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 blah. Supposed to be making 120K. I'm supposed to be in, in Dubai this month, Bali next month, Philippines the third month. Then I'm slide through Miami one time and buy me three, four houses. I'm gonna give me somebody to look cute, make me look good on Instagram. Life's gonna be good. And all that's supposed to happen in the next two and a half years, preferably. <laughs> and because we're so obsessed over what's supposed to happen in the next two years, we have no conception of what God wants to do in our 40s. You know what I've started saying? I started saying, Lord, I thank you for 40-year-old Princeton. He about to be a bad dude. He just don't know it because he's 25 right now and he's just looking for 25 to 27. But I'm grossly underestimating what God's going to do in the long term. The first man stood in the midst of sin and protected his ego. Instead of looking at the fact that, kid, bro, Adam, dude, the whole earth belonged to you. Can you trip on that for a second? I just want four or five houses. Yes, four or five. Don't look at me like that. <laughs> Adam had the planet. That was his inheritance. But one moment of protecting how he felt and what he wanted in that second mattered more to him than his inheritance. The next thing that Adam does, number five, is the sin of abandonment. Adam was so afraid to lose everything that he lost what really mattered. Some of us are afraid. You're afraid to admit where you're wrong. You're afraid to admit where you failed because you think you're going to lose everything. Society has taught you to believe that if you're honest, the world's going to come for you. You're going to lose everything you worked for. You're going to lose everything that you fought for. And so because you're trying to protect that, because you don't want to lose that stuff that you worked so hard to get, then you're not honest about what's going on in your life. But God says, if you step up to be accountable, you might lose for a season. But if you cover in shame what needs to be exposed, then what will happen is you'll lose for life. Adam had the sin of abandonment. He chose to walk away from what God told him to be responsible for. Notice that when God finally addressed this, he didn't say to Adam, hey, look, I'm at. He didn't say, like my mom used to say, God wasn't like, Jesus, get my belt off that hanger. Get my belt. And then hold the belt up and be like, Adam, let me talk to you for a second. I want to talk to you with that belt in your hand, God. Ain't nobody playing with you. No, that's not how he approached it. God said, Adam, where are you? God's concern was not Adam's sin. It was the fact that he walked away. God said, look. As long as you stay in the post, we can fix whatever you messed up. Many of us believe that the only way God can redeem it is if I walk away from it because I don't feel good when I'm doing it. I don't feel strong. I'm not good at this and I have to fight this every day because a lot of my insecurities in, in some areas revolve around sort of logistics and processes. I rely on people who are good at that. I'm very creative. I'm very visionary. So sometimes when I'm asked to do logistical things, it's a struggle for me. And so sometimes I just, I just pull out all together. Like, that's not me. Have somebody else do it. But God says, look, even if you fail, you're running away from the things you feel like you're not good at. But if you stay on the post, I'll make you good at them. I'll restore what you feel like you're not good at. We'll end here. The Bible says, 
that Adam, the first man, and the weight in the room after a sermon like this, it's kind of heavy. Kind of be like, appreciate you, white pants, <laughs> for beating us up on Father's Day. And I've structured the sermon that way as I close because this weight that we collectively feel is what the planet felt after Adam sinned. It felt hopeless. Like, can I ever be good then? Are there any good men left then? Some that are not silent, some that will protect their inheritance. I mean, it feels kind of hopeless, but I still have hope. Yeah, it's, it's hopeless when, when society puts that image to you, but, but I, I still have hope. Why do I have hope? Can I borrow the last five minutes of your time? Then we're going to get our grape juice and go home. I still have hope. The first man left me feeling real dark, but, but I still have hope. The first man messed it up, and now all of a sudden sin is running rampant. Brothers are killing brothers. Folks are all over the place. People are leaving places that they should have stayed. Folks are, are, are causing toxicity. We've got everything from injustice to racial discrimination to patriarchy. Folks is, is being horrible to people. Folks don't care about nothing and all this stuff, and it seems hopeless, but I still have hope. Princeton, why do you have hope? Don't, don't you know how men have been? Don't you know what Adam did? Don't you know that that is the nature of how we come into the world? How do you have hope? I have hope like Paul had hope in Romans chapter 5. Why do I have hope? I have hope because I came as the first man. The first man is who I was introduced to first. The first man is what's around me all the time. The first man is what gets highlighted in culture. But there was one day in my life where I got introduced to the second man. There, there, there was one day in my life where I got exposed to the second man. There was one day when I realized that as I'm choosing how I define masculinity, I don't just have one man to pattern myself after. Oh, but there was a second man. Now, this man wasn't had the name of Adam. This man wasn't named Adam, but, but some might call this man the bread of life. This man was not Adam, but some might call this man the truth. This man was not Adam, but John calls him the word that existed in the beginning with God and that he was God. This man was not named Adam, but he is called the Prince of Peace. This man was not named Adam, but he is called the Rose of Sharon. This man is not called Adam, but he's called the Lily of the Valley. This man is not called Adam, but he's called Emmanuel, who is God with us. This man is not Adam, but he is the Prince of Peace. He is the Comforter. He is the one who has come. This man, his name is Jesus. That's why I still have hope. That's why I don't want you to leave here feeling beat up because manhood is a choice and you get to choose who you be. And God says, I have set before you two options. I know that you've seen the mistakes of the first man, but you need to look at the accomplishments of the second man. Oh, I'm talking about a second man that I know. And that second man is the one who gives me hope. Jesus does the opposite of everything that Adam does. Everything that Adam failed at, Jesus stepped up and he shows us that it is possible that you get a second chance. Is there anybody glad that God one day stepped into your life and said, I know that that's how your genesis was, but fast forward through a few more chapters. There is a second man. I know you messed up, but there is a second man. I know you made some toxic decisions, but there is a second man. I know society wrote you off, but there's a second man. I know that you did them wrong, but there's a second man. I know you did some prison time, but there's a second man. And because there's a second man, you are not defined by what you've done, but you are defined by who you choose to be right now. Somebody shout, thank God for the second man. Jesus is the second man in the tale of two men. I feel the Holy Ghost. And the Bible helps me understand in Romans 5 that everything that Adam messed up, Jesus fulfilled it. Jesus came through and undid everything that Adam did so that I don't feel like I'm hopeless because of who Adam was because there's a tale of two men. You see, Adam was silent, but Jesus spoke up. He spoke up into the lives of others. He looked at Peter and he said, I want you to know who you are. You are Peter and upon this rock I built my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. He spoke up against injustice. He walked up to the Pharisees and he said, y'all are a bunch of hypocrites. You're putting all these laws on people and you're not giving them a chance to know the reason behind the law because the second man was different. Adam, the first man,
man he covered but the second man exposed injustice he exposed the Pharisees he said I'm not afraid to pull the cover off so that you can see what's really going on Jesus was the second man number three he didn't blame people he empowered them Jesus never blamed people he empowered them there was a woman who was caught in adultery much like Eve was caught with the fruit and the first man went into that situation and said it's all her fault but Jesus in the same situation where he could have blamed the woman caught in adultery like Eve he stood in front of her and he said let him who is without sin cast the first stone he covered her he said y'all don't get to crucify her you didn't bring that man she was with to me so don't bring her by herself and say that this is her fault. Don't try to pin this on her like she's dirty, but he's not. If you're going to start holding people accountable for sin, start with your own. And just when Jesus started holding people accountable, the Bible says from the oldest to the youngest, they started dropping their thrones. And then when he came to her, when it was just him and her, he didn't blame her then either. He said, where are your accusers? Does anybody condemn you? No, I don't either. Go be empowered to live your life. Jesus, he didn't blame. Jesus didn't do anything out of ego. Anytime they told him prove himself, he was like, peace. I don't have anything to prove for you because I know who I am. Jesus said, I ain't got to have a house. I built this earth. I ain't got to have some house to impress you. I own all this. I don't need to flex what I can do. If you don't believe me, that's on you. And you're going to miss out on what I could have done to help your existence. Jesus didn't do anything out of ego. He made himself of low reputation. How do I become the second man? Number one, you get to know Jesus. Study who you wish to become. Number two, you must get healed. The nature of the first man is in us at birth. We come in as the first man. We must actively heal and unlearn the nature for the first man so that we can put on the nature of Jesus Christ. We have to unlearn what culture teaches us. We have to unlearn what is passed down to us by our fathers and uncles and their ways. We have to unlearn that stuff. We have to be healed because when you are unhealed, your pain talks to you louder than your conscience. When you haven't healed, your pain will tell you to do stuff and your conscience is trying to tell you that's not God. But because you're hurt, you're going to do whatever takes some of that pain away. I know that everything that you feel is natural. But we're at the point now that because we know the second man, we must trade what is natural for what's supernatural. Last but not least, you must discover your purpose. The first man is how you come into the world. The second man is who you're developed into. The first man is by default. The second man is by choice. The first man has no hope. The second man, he was hope. The first man believed that his status was his identity. But the second man let his status come from his identity. The first man was concerned about how Eden and life would benefit him. But the second man is concerned how, with how his life will benefit the world. The first man was created in the image of God, but the second man is God. The first man was made of dirt, but it was the second man that made the first. The first man didn't say the right words, but the second man is the word. The first man was created in a period of time, but the second man is timeless. The first man broke our relationship with God. The second man restored our relationship. The first man was an excuse. The second man was an example. The first man brought us sin, but the second man brought salvation. The first man brought us life, brought us death, but in the second man we have life everlasting. And my question to you today is in the tale of two men, which one will you be? Fam, there you have it. In the tale of two men, um, I am personally striving to be like Jesus, someone who had a standard for his life that was not based upon what he had, but was based upon the character that he chose because it's all about our choices. So I hope that 
illuminate some stuff for you. I hope that it blessed you. Don't forget some of the big things. Masculinity uh, is about what you choose. You can define it. And I believe um, that those of us who believe in Jesus Christ ought to define it biblically. And I'm not talking about gender roles. I'm talking about character and aspects of character that are different between the first man and the second. And so I really want to be like Jesus. That's my goal. So Hope that's your pursuit. If you're a man out there listening, uh, I'm going to be releasing a lot more episodes to speak to uh, men. I believe that we have to hold one another accountable um, as we grow and develop. So in the tale of two men, which one you going to be? I hope this blessed you. Hey, uh, you can feel free to reach out to me. We've got a new email address, new email address. You go ahead and uh, reach out um, to us through PrincetonParker.com, um, info at PrincetonParker.com, and uh, we would love to hear from you there, okay? So thank you so much. Please, again, always, uh, it helps us out if you like and subscribe and share this. Uh, I'm going to ask you to do that. Share this with a man in your life or with someone who has been looking for this kind of teaching as it relates to uh, different definitions and discussions about masculinity, okay? Send this around, share this with somebody so that they can be blessed and then challenge them either who are you choosing to be who you're looking for how are you holding people accountable etc happy father's day <laughs> we can have later i love y'all so much and i can't wait to share some more stuff with you next week okay have a great week and as i say always with god as your foundation and purpose as your motivation keep building family